This is episode 197 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Policy, Regenerative Medicine, and Human Cloning with Bernie Siegel. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dalon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Bernie Siegel, Executive Director of the Regenerative Medicine Foundation. He's on the podcast to talk about the nonprofit's mission to accelerate regenerative medicine to improve health and deliver cures. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Cell Therapy News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cell therapy research. Use Cell Therapy News to stay current with the latest cell therapy, gene therapy, and regenerative medicine research. So subscribe at www.celltherapynews.com. All right, Arun, I'm going to check that out. I'm kicking off the roundup today with a story about organs on a chip. You know, we just uh, finished up our coverage of ISSCR 2021. So if you guys missed it, I would recommend checking it out. We also have video episodes there so you can see us in all our glory. But in that meeting, there was a lot of talk about where we are and where we're going. And uh, a lot of that revolved around these kind of organs on a chip, which I know, Arun, you're working on. This is IPS cell-derived, tissues, um, organoids even, but they're in a kind of complex chip type architecture that allows a connection of different tissues and organs and see how they communicate with each other. And it is the next wave. Um, I have a story here about the lung. It's a kind of airway on a chip idea. And, you know, it's based on the idea that in the lung, uh, in order for it to function, you have clearance uh, by airway cells, eliminates the inhaled pathogens and foreign matter. And that's done by these multiciliated airway cells, okay? And it requires coordinated ciliary beating amongst these cells. And if you have failure to properly orient that cilia and and coordinate that ciliary beating, you get a lot of conditions like chronic bronchitis, uh, recurrent pneumonia. Uh, This is implicated in various human diseases, most notably a inherited disease, uh, primary ciliary dyskinesia, which we're gonna circle back to PCD. Um, but when it comes to like the IPS and organoid world and trying to model uh, this, these multiciliated airway cells, uh, it's a challenge because getting the cells is not so much the problem as much as uh, using the conventional methods, which is air-liquid interface, it's hard to get the coordinated cilia. They, don't, they aren't coordinated in their beating. Um, and it's thought that mechanical stress has a role in, in coordinating the cilia there, but the existing system, which is these in vitro air liquid interface, they don't do a good job of addressing that or modeling uh, the system. So uh, this is where uh, Shimpei Goto, who's uh, at, uh, as his lab is in uh, Kyoto University, um, they hypothesized that going into this organ on a chip uh, format would provide a more effective method of modeling and, and recapitulating this coordinated ciliary beating. Um, and while they're at it, 
they wanted to also leverage the whole IPS idea to do some disease modeling of this primary ciliary dyskinesia, which it's an autosomal recessive disorder uh, that results in reduced mucociliary clearance and associated bronchitis and pneumonia. It has a prevalence about one in 10,000. And the mechanisms uh, that, that underlie it are not well known and there's no model uh, that you can use to like develop therapies or identify targets. So there's an unmet need there and uh, Shimpei and his group, they, uh, they were willing to meet that need. Um, and just briefly, you should have a look at the paper. It's in Science Translational Medicine. Uh, but briefly, they effectively, they did it. Uh, they put the human IPS-derived MCAC, these multicellulated airway cells, they put them into this um, chip and showed that fluid shear stress uh, was effective in regulating planar cell polarity uh, and uh, coordinating the cilia as well as inducing, inducing cilia genesis as well as coordinating um, the beating and it resulted in a more appropriate model of primary ciliary dyskinesia that they set up using the human-derived, patient-derived IPS cells. And while they were able to show, uh, recapitulate the, the normal coordinated beating, the cilia beating, um, in the wild-type cells, they uh, were able to reproduce that abnormal ciliary function in the, in the disease-affected cells. Um, so they didn't go so far as to then identify targets and therapies um, but still, you know, it's a translational medicine story because they set up this, I think, robust platform, which now can be carried forward to, you know, make diagnoses, identify targets, um, and develop therapies. Uh, and also, you know, with this model, I think there's a lot to, to be learned about just generating tissues. I mean, these organoidship uh, systems generally I, I think the, the goal there is to more accurately reproduce the, the systems that are present in, in organs across different cell types. Um, so there's a lot to learn really just about uh, the complexity of differentiation of multiple cells and tissues within the lung. Yeah, as somebody doing some organ on chip work myself, I can really appreciate it. I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to using this type of technology. The advantages, as you described, it's like a fully integrated system whereby you can grow multiple cell types together and importantly have a lot of these dynamic features like shear stress, biomechanical stretch, these features that are found innately in the human body, but it's tough to replicate those in a traditional two-dimensional culture, right? So I, I really like this approach because they showed the shear stress, something that you can't introduce normally in 2D culture is having a beneficial effect in this airway culture. And really it, it's something that's been shown in other chip models as well. There are endothelial models that uh, in the presence of the, the shear stress, these endothelial cells align like they normally would in the direction of the, the, the flow of the fluid, just like what you might expect in the body. Even in some of the neuronal cultures that my lab here in, at Cedars-Sinai, Clive Svensson's lab, they've actually in their blood-brain barrier chip shown that under active dynamic uh, shear stress, 
neuronal cultures can actually exhibit enhancement maturation. So these, you know, these secondary effects, these dynamic effects are really critical, I think, in terms of making the cells that we grow in vitro and in these chips, you know, making them more advanced, more mature. And that's the whole deal, right? For in vitro modeling, which is kind of what I'm focusing on, what I focus on, we're always trying to make our systems better, make ourselves more mature and have some of these secondary dynamic effects. I think it's it's all going towards making this a, just a better system to, to study whatever disease you're interested in. Yeah, and it reminds me of uh, our chat with Matthias Lutop and all his work of, you know, combining these the, the kind of growing systems with the engineering systems. And I can see moving forward as organoids become integrated into these chip type models that our ability to, to measure and monitor these systems in, in complex assembloids uh, is gonna become more and more advanced. I'm excited to see uh, the work that comes out in the next months and years. I'm very excited. Yeah, cool stuff. And speaking of Matthias Lutoff and cool new technologies that were talked about specifically at ISSCR that we you know just came back from. Next paper I'm going to talk about is talking about a new technology called SciSpace, which is a, a method for embryo scale single cell spatial transcriptomics. Spatial transcriptomics, I think it was actually quote unquote the technology of the year in science like uh, either last year or the year before. So this is a science paper. The title of this paper is, again, Embryo Scale, Single Cell Spatial Transcriptomics. Uh, first author is Sanjay Srivatsan, coming from Cole Trapnell's lab over there at the University of Washington. And also on the paper is Jay Shandure, who's an, a master of all things genome sequencing, next-gen sequencing, so on. So uh, this is definitely in his wheelhouse. So what they're doing here is they're introducing this technology called SciSpace, a new approach to spatial transcriptomics that can keep the single cell resolution and the spatial heterogeneity at scales that are way better than previous methods. I mean, this isn't the first time this has been described, but the scale and the, the precision here, I think, is the, the point of emphasis. So what they did is they generated single cell atlases of sections of the mouse embryo at 14 days of development, okay? And the single cell sequencing, of course, we talk about it all the time, right? It's really critical in helping us understand how tissues develop in particular. It's really critical in developmental biology. And we're complexing that single cell RNA sequencing technology with spatial transcriptomics. So you can preserve that spatial context between cells and also use that to identify a specific set of genes or um, pathways that may be expressed in these cells at specific locations and tissue, right? So this approach, size space, is able to, again, retain single cell resolution while also resolving the spatial context of the cells, okay? And the key, the really the key in the entire approach is these grid of barcoded DNA oligos, right? Which they can move from a slide to nuclei of an overlaid tissue section. And so this allows for this, you know, to identify simultaneously the spatial origin and the transcriptome for, in this situation, 120,000 cells in the developing mouse embryo, okay? So you can have a spatially resolved single cell atlas of the whole day 14 mouse, uh, day 14 mouse embryo. And you can just imagine the applications. It doesn't have to be even for 
you know, necessarily for developmental biology, but you could use it for, you know, with studying disease states, you can use it for whatever cell type and tissue type that you're interested in. I, I think this is great because it's just showing the direction and where this technology is going. I think we talked about this a little bit before the show. There are commercial vendors that are starting to do spatial transcriptomics, right? This isn't necessarily the first time that this has been done, but in my opinion, this is probably the, the best it's been done so far. And as somebody who's doing a lot of single cell seek, I'm sure you can appreciate this, right? Oh, man, I'm like underwater with the single cell seek. And now there's going to be a deluge of the spatial. I'm not complaining because it's awesome. And as you described there so well, it gives you this whole other dimension. And, and, and really, for me, uh, it's opening doors because, yeah, I, I've been restricted in what I can do in my work because, you know, working with human tissue, it's tough. And up to this point, the resolution has been great. You know, we were doing bulksy just a few years ago, and now we're doing single cell and allows yeah. us to really close in and get the higher resolution. But we can't we can only see the tissues that we can dissociate and we can only see the cells that come out of there. Right. So now we're able to moving into the, this technology, we're trying to actually see the, the tissue in C2 under different experimental conditions. And and I, like many others, are really excited. And as we like to say on this show, asking the same questions now with new tech and getting new insights. But I mean, this is just, this is one in a wave of mm -hmm. papers that are gonna come out. A lot of them have already come out in the brain because it has such a stereotypic architecture and it's such a mystery. But I, I can just, you know, we can assume that every organ, every kind of disease state, um, organoids, a lot, of, of new uh, genomics data is gonna hail from the, the spatial uh, sphere. So it's exciting when bioinformatics get ready. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, like you're talking about, there's always gonna be a demand for bioinformatics and good bioinformaticians who can analyze these ridiculously expansive data sets, right? 120,000 nuclei with uh, transcriptomic and you know spatial data that's that's a that's a lot of data to analyze that's for sure but i think the accessibility is kind of kind of limited based on the you know the commercial availability of this technology i guess right so part of the reason single cell became so accessible was because of fluidime and 10x which created these kits that were really easy accessible to the general scientific you know biomedical researchers right uh, across the the world and i think that's the next step here is can we make this kind of technology just as accessible just as commercializable and i'm, I'm sure it's it's already happening right Oh man, it's in play, but it's expensive. I'm going yeah. broke with 10X. <laughs> I, I will say my one critique, and they've said they've already on the they're already on the path here, is that these are, you know, these are grids, they're arrays, and oftentimes you capture multiple cells um, in each, you know, barcoded spot there. So um, I think that there has to be some improvements on the resolution. They claim to be getting down to, I talked to the vendor, the rep, and he said they're getting down to one micron resolution, which I think is insane and I don't believe it. But if they wow. get there, uh, it would be amazing. And also there's all these uh, bioinformatics scripts out there that are able to refine the resolution, even using the 50 micron uh, dots that they, they have right now. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm deep in it on the spatial, but 
Uh, let me stop and move on with the roundup here. Uh, I have a story here, another talking about therapy, you know, at the ISSCR, a lot of, um, not a lot, but a few groups were talking about senolytics. And this isn't a brand new idea, but I think it's really um, got the momentum now. This is the whole idea that you can remove senescent cells and it'll improve uh, longevity and or, uh, you know, recovery, uh, rejuvenation, regeneration of tissue. Um, and here, uh, the lab of Leonor Saad, she, she and her group, they from uh, Lisbon, Portugal, they uh, tried to apply this idea in the spinal cord, okay? So spinal cord injury, which is probably one of the first targets of stem cells in the early, early days, um, because it was such a vivid representation of the potential of regenerative therapies. Um, it's defined by three biological features, okay? You have the fibrotic scar, uh, where there's no neural tissue, viable neural tissue left. Then you have a astrocytic scar around that fibrotic scar. And then you have a surrounding area where the neural tissue spared, like it's still alive, but has limited function, okay? It's a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, and those cells in particular, it's thought have some functional plasticity that they can perhaps uh, regenerate and cause some therapeutic uh, potential um, if they could be tapped and leveraged. Uh, and meanwhile, that fibrotic scar, it's negative. It's like a structural support. It's dead, right? It provides like a, stu a structural column there still, um, but it's not viable, right? So that um, dead scar tissue has an inhibitory effect uh, on the microenvironment. Um, so it just, it's not really amenable to regrowth, all right? Not permissive to regrowth. Uh, and more, moreover, the injury creates this inflammatory condition where you have activated astrocytes and then macrophages inf infiltrating from circulation, and they just stay there pretty much indefinitely, um, creating this chronic inflammatory state. All right. So in contrast to this, in zebrafish, like you know zebrafish, they're like bulletproof pretty much in the heart, but also in the spinal cord. They can recover motor and sensory function. Um, and it's thought that this stems from a supportive microenvironment as opposed to this deleterious uh, microenvironment in mammals. Um, and that supportive microenvironment is defined by no formation of scar. And the inflammation, while it's there, it's dynamically controlled and ultimately attenuates with recovery of the tissue. All right, so getting back to senolytics, I, I alluded to it early. Recent years, it's a, it's a big idea that we can get rid of senescent cells uh, and improve tissue remodeling, limit fibrosis, uh, accelerate wound healing. You know, most notably, I think in the heart, it's been shown um, that that has potential, but also other tissues and organs. Uh, so based on this, Leonore and her group, they hypothesized that it's the senescent cells in the spinal cord that are impeding regeneration in mammals specifically. And what they did is they did a comparative approach looking at zebrafish versus mouse. Uh, and they show that there are two distinct senescence profiles uh, in the context of spinal injury. There's the zebrafish where the senescent cells are progressively cleared out versus the mouse where the senescent cells just accumulate over time and don't go anywhere. Um, then, of course, you can imagine they show that if you deplete the senescent cells in the, in the injured mice, 
with senolytic drugs, they can improve the locomotor, sensory, and bladder function. And that uh, improvement was associated with myelin sparing and reduced scar, all the hallmarks of uh, improved regeneration, attenuated and inflammation, um, also attenuated inflammation, suggesting that it is that, that reduction of the inflammatory milieu that may be uh, having this regenerative uh, effect. Um, and also less secretion of the pro-fibrotic and pro-inflammatory factors. So I think it's taking an idea that's been in play and been kicked around a lot and moving into the spinal cord. And for me, the real juicy takeaway from this, besides the obvious therapeutic potential of senolytic drugs in the spinal cord, like everywhere else, uh, is I think a nice, clean, comparative approach between the zebrafish and the mouse, which allowed a little bit of mechanistic insight into what you know makes these systems different and also to that end maybe it might be some leads um that i'm sure many people have already thought about about how zebrafish are so regenerative in other tissues so a nice cell report story from the lab of leonor saud from the instituto de medicina molecular see that accent i, I pulled that one off arun i've been working on it I'm not even going to attempt that, man. I'll leave that to you, dude. But yes, a beautiful evolutionary story. I, I love these Evo Devo stories. Anytime we talk about the zebrafish, you know me. I love the zebrafish in part because of my uh, days admiring Ken Poss's lab back at Duke University, go Blue Devils. Speaking of which, Dr. Poss is actually going to be on the show not too long from now. So that's the... That's been a long-standing dream of mine to actually have him on the show because he's actually one of my oldest, I guess, mentors and inspirations for going into science. But, but back to the, the focus here, the zebrafish, man. I mean, if you think about it from the evolutionary perspective, I mean, this is a kind of an obvious statement, right? But you just have to admire the beauty, the regenerative capacity of this particular organism, right? And if you think about it, it's only like what 200 million years separating between separating humans and separating zebrafish on the the evolutionary tree and just to have such a dynamic regenerative capacity not just in the heart as we all know about but in the spinal cord in all different portions of the fish body it's it's just begging to be harnessed you know what i mean and i just feel like we we haven't quite gotten there yet but stories like this show that even just as a as a benchmark as a comparative benchmark this is such a, a powerful model system so gotta show my love to zebrafish man love the zebrafish would that we could harness the power of the fish you know go back a couple hundred million years and tap that potential or i, I don't know uh, maybe that's for you you could be Aquaman. I'm going to stay human. All right. Uh, that said, I, I will, I will agree with you. The mechanisms there are, are boundless and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm counting on you partner to, to figure out if I can keep myself out of a tragic spinal cord injury, I, I won't need the power of the fish, but my heart, I mean, my heart. Room. So please, can you figure it out? Hey, man, that's a lot of pressure, not just for me, but for the entire cardiac field. So, you know, oh, man, too much pressure. But speaking of harnessing, actually, you know, stuff from nature, speaking of harnessing, like not zebrafish, but we're talking about CRISPR, right? CRISPR was initially discovered as a defense mechanism of, you know, for 
for infection, right? Viral infection found in bacteria, right? And from that seminal basic science discovery from way back in the day by Jennifer Doudna, Charpentier, all these folks, right? We have this moment in time where CRISPR has finally reached the clinic. And in particular, I want to talk about a story that's not even a stem cell story per se, but this has gotten a ton of popular press, all right? Because this is the first ever clinical data that are supporting the safety and efficacy of in vivo CRISPR genome editing in humans, okay? So this is a landmark. I mean, just that phrase that I just described, first ever in vivo, in human CRISPR genome editing. I mean, you knew it was going to happen, right? But here we are. So this is a, a New England Journal paper titled uh, CRISPR-Cas9 in vivo gene editing for transthyretin amyloidosis. Okay. It's published in NEJM, New England Journal. Okay. And this is a, this is a clinical trial result coming from Intellia Therapeutics, Regeneron, and other clinical partners from the US, the UK, and New Zealand that actually showed that in this study, their in vivo genome editing candidate NTLA-2001 is able to reduce this protein linked to uh, transthyretin amyloidosis. Okay. So this is another one of those amyloidosis disease, sort of similar to Alzheimer's where you have these plaques, whatever accumulating, which are really painful. And in a lot of cases, they can cause cardiovascular disorders. Um, so this is a, a devastating genetic disease that's been able to be really, I mean, I don't like to always use the word, but cured. It's been cured by, by CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing, right? This is actually data that was presented in the New England Journal at the same time that it was presented at the 2021 Peripheral Nerve Society annual meeting. So they show that a single dose of this NTLA-2001 genome editing cocktail can uh, lead to an almost 90% reduction in the amount of serum uh, TTR protein, that amyloid protein that's accumulating in these patients. This is by, by 30 days, okay? And uh, it, there was, it was a little bit variable in terms of its, of its efficacy, but in different patients with this particular 0.3 milligram per kilo, uh, kilogram dose had reductions in the proteins of 80, 84, 96%. So that's pretty great because the standard of care for this particular disease reduces uh, the TTR by about 80%. And that's kind of a repeated dose, right? This is a one-shot cure, which is pretty incredible. Uh, to have this one-shot cure be that effective in reducing the accumulation of this protein, it's, uh, it's critical. So a lot of hope for this really devastating genetic disorder. And it's, it's, I think, solving a lot of issues, solving a lot of questions about how, you know, CRISPR can be delivered in vivo in the human body. So they can be targeted to the liver, it can be targeted to other portions of the body successfully. And you got to think this is the first in just a wave, a wave of genome editing, clinical trial papers that are going to be coming out over the next few years. And we know Editas, Intelligent, uh, you know, so many different companies are working on this. CRISPR Therapeutics, Intellia, Regeneron, you can, the, the list goes on and on. Beam Therapeutics from David Liu. There are a lot of these papers and studies that are in the works, so more to come. Genetic disease is finished. Well, that's <laughs> an overstatement, but uh, you said it. It's it's for a kind of first entry, right? First in human, first in vivo, direct. Um, and this is more the the cruder kind of tech, right? That where you go in and you break the gene, 
Yeah. Uh, not, not, not even considering all the base editing and more precise tech that is now being developed. I mean, this is tech that's been around, right? To get to this point in clinical trials, that, that kind of stuff takes years and all the follow-up. Yeah. So, I mean, the next, the next, I hate when people say five to 10 years, but wow, I mean, five to 10 years from now, there's, it's just going to be one thing after the next. So uh, it's so, so exciting. Um, we got to talk to to Bernie maybe about the implications of this for uh, for healthcare. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. This is old school CRISPR, like it came out in like, I guess the mid 2010s, right? The, the dirty version of the technology that's able to just have a double-stranded break, blow up the genome. I talk about it right a lot. It's like taking a shotgun to the genome. It's not clean. But the next generation of these in vivo therapies are going to utilize, say, base editors, which are much cleaner, much more targeted in their approach. So this is just the first in a wave of therapies that are going to be treating simple, simple genetic dis disorders, right? That is, that is the key. That's, that's what you're alluding to, right? There's so many diseases out there that are caused by polygenic uh, they're polygenic diseases, right? Heart disease, diabetes, all these kind of things. We're talking about simple disease. It's not like every single genetic disorder is going to be cured now because of gene editing, right? But you love to dream, don't you? I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a dream, Arun. I'm saying it 10 to 20 years, all genetic disease, finished. No, I'm just joking. Um, although we should talk with Bernie about what the landscape looks like with this high tech therapy. We're talking about curing diseases, but is it really you know, accessible to everybody. Maybe that's something that, uh, that he can speak to. We'll get to that. But before we do, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell recently hosted their annual stem selfie contest. More than 40 images were submitted for re from researchers around the world. And Erica Guerrero at the Gorgas Memorial Laboratory in Panama City was announced as the grand prize winner. Congratulations, Erica, very nicely done. Now all of the incredible submissions are on the Stem Cell website for the world to see. Take a peek at the gallery at www.stemcell.com slash stem selfie. That's stem selfie spelled with a C. Now on to the interview with Bernie Siegel. All right, we are here with Bernie Siegel, who is executive director of the Regenerative Medicine Foundation and founder of the World Stem Cell Summit. Bernie is executive director of the Regenerative Medicine Foundation, as I said, which is a non nonprofit consisting of a global network of stakeholders committed to the ethical advancement of medicines powered by regenerative, restorative, and curative technologies. Their flagship event, which was founded by Bernie, the World Stem Cell Summit, is a global transdisciplinary event with the collective goal of improving health and developing cures. Bernie, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being here, Bernie. You've been in the regenerative medicine field for a long time now and have really been one of the field's founding champions. So it's, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. And I wanted to expand a little bit on the Regenerative Medicine Foundation that you're so intimately involved with. Um, taking a quick look at the leadership of the foundation, there seems to be quite a who's who of scientists on the advisory board, including well-known stem cell biologists and former actually stem cell podcast guests, such as Gene Loring, Clive Svensson, Len Zahn, 
and even folks who have been in leadership positions at the International Society for Stem Cell Research, including Sally Temple. And on that last point, I'm just wondering about the niche that the Regenerative Medicine Foundation uh, and the annual World Stem Cell Summit fills, given a bit of the overlap with the ISSCR. So why don't you give us an, an overview of your mission at the Regenerative Medicine Foundation? Or, well, the, the mission is to accelerate regenerative medicine to improve health and deliver cures. And I was uh, brought into the field uh, by the founders of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Uh, I had uh, created a, a rather sensational lawsuit uh, where we debunked a claim about human reproductive cloning. And at the time, that was a very, very hot issue, a societal issue, um, whether we should support therapeutic cloning or somatic cell nuclear transfer or in oppose reproductive cloning. And uh, in that journey, I had reached out to some of the prominent leaders of the field because of the suit, including Rudolf Janisch and Ian Wilmot. When they founded the International Society for Stem Cell Research, they invited me as their guest. And it was uh, in Washington, DC in 2004. And of course, what I uh, noted at the time was the, the lack of patient advocates in the room. Uh, when I would duck into a session, uh, you know, uh, even though I aced college uh, bio uh, biology, uh, it was a little hard to understand the data to say the least. So I would chat with the uh, exhibitors, all five of them out in the hall. And uh, then uh, when the scientists came out, I was being squired, uh, squired around largely by Ian Wilmot at the time. And uh, that was a, a decision point in my life as to whether I was going to go back to my active practice of law or uh, go in another direction. And what I found is that the, the scientific community, at least that we're meeting in that room, were under siege. They felt they were under siege uh, over the battles uh, relating to embryonic stem cell research. And as a lawyer in a background in, in law and practicing some 27 years in the courtrooms, wild and woolly courtrooms of Miami, Florida and South Florida, uh, I was well positioned to be able to, uh, I, what I thought, translate the message of the science to the public and was unafraid to debate those opponents of embryonic stem cell research in the media and, and otherwise. So I created a science advisory board of a nonprofit organization that I, that I created. And it was largely composed of the, comprised of these leading scientists giants of the field. Now, over the course of some close to 20 years, uh, I realize, of course, that the field has evolved and evolved way beyond basic research and way beyond just embryonic stem cell research. Uh, so the legacy of the organization is largely still comprised of colleagues or friends that were leaders of the scientific community at the time. But our focus is much more translational now than the research of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. So uh, you can see that in the development of how we've, uh, the roster of the World Stem Cell Summit 
our annual event and uh, the intersection of industry, uh, finance, philanthropy, and, um, and regulation that is really some of the more paramount issues of the, of the day. Hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, I was looking at the agenda there because we, we just wrapped our, our day-to-day coverage of ISSCR 2021. And uh, I realized that the World Stem Cell Summit was just a couple weeks before that, um, which it's the flagship event, of course. Um, and there were a lot of big names in the stem cell field, specifically like Gordana Bunyak Novakovic. Sorry about that. Takanor Takebe, uh, of course, um, who was also at the ISSCR, I should know. But, but you alluded to it also. There's other, other uh, elements that need to be levered uh, to move the field forward. There are notable f- figures in pop science. I, I don't want to reduce that, but more, more popular science as well as hard science. Um, uh, Aubrey de Grey was there. Also politics and Nancy Pelosi showed up and in sports pop sports in the agenda i saw sterling sharp ex nfl player not to mention nih director francis collins also there on the agenda so yeah i mean i could go on but needless to say it was a real all-star cast but diverse um specifically like the the more notable uh popular culture figures what's exactly the role there um in advancing the mission is it is it getting the, the visibility amongst the public? Do we need ambassadors amongst popular culture to, to relay this information to science? Or are these just advocates for, for their own reasons? Well, I think you've uh, hit upon something at, at the core. Uh, my worldview of the field of stem cell research and regenerative medicine, it's basically cell therapies, right? And uh, when we think about medicine, we think about drugs, biologics, medical devices, and another platform, cell therapies. Uh, I didn't originate that idea. Uh, it came from some writings from a friend, Dr. Chris Mason at, uh, in London. But um, in, I think that's a, a real solid understanding of what we have here. Cell therapies is different. There are a whole array of challenges to bring this into the practice of medicine. Uh, whose ox is being gored, right? How does it, what's the interplay with the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, how do we uh, regulate this? Uh, what are the challenges, the financial challenges? Uh, who's gonna fund the research? All of these societal issues uh, uh, crop up. And if this is as profound as I think it is, uh, of course, we're going to need ambassadors. How's you know the, the normal person, myself included, before I got involved in the field, didn't think much of the National Institutes of Health or the role of the Food and Drug Administration, uh, much less about you know human cells and in the day-to-day work that I did. Uh, so, uh, how's the world to confront this? And then if you go out to the take it out to the broadest perspective is this is a possible species altering events is related to some of these technologies. It's absolutely future shock. So this is the world that I stepped into and it was so fascinating, but I also realized how's the public supposed to understand this? So over the years, uh, I've looked at myself as a patient advocate. I'm an educated layperson, a lawyer, but as a, as a, 
I could relate to patients, I could relate to patient advocates and the importance of narrative. What's the narrative that has to be presented to be able to move a brand new field of medicine forward at a time of this great convergence of technologies? So right in the here and now, well, the NFL of all places, the National Football League and the NFL Alumni Association is trying to hash out what's going on with regenerative medicine and the, and the aspects of the brain injuries to, to former players, uh, the future of contact sports, the lure of going to some clinic in the neighborhood that might be uh, run by, uh, as the FDA says, is a bad actor. How do we educate the NFL? And the NFL, of course, and it's a cultural phenomenon, in the United States is very important. So I was very proud to be at, asked to join a committee of something called NFL Alumni Health as related to regenerative medicine. Why? Because it's consumer related and also understanding how the importance of NFL alumni has been in getting the United States vaccinated and working with the, the CDC. So it's the uh, bridge between the broader society and the scientific community and the investment community and the industrial community to bring this new field forward. And I'm just a generalist and uh, I am a patient advocate. I'm a cancer survivor myself. I was motivated to take this on just because it was absolutely most fascinating thing and best highest and best use of my life. That's completely fair. And I think you touched on something here. I think stem cell research is one of these subfields of modern science that really has caught the public's eye because of its tremendous potential. And because of that, as you've alluded to, we've had a number of champions in the non-scientific sphere. I mean, that's part of the reason that even here in California, CIRM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, became so successful and actually passed in the first place is because we had such prominent public figures willing to, to back it. So, you know, speaking about your advocacy work, and you've been a champion of this field, as we've talked about for, for a couple of decades now and, and longer beyond that. Um, I actually had the good fortune of meeting you at the 2016 World Stem Cell Summit. I was talking about some of my work that I did on the International Space Station in collaboration with the uh, astronaut Kate Rubens. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, to thanks talk for about. reminding me. Yes. Yeah, that was a great panel. So thank you for the for the invite. And um, I mean, you've advocated for the translational potential and the safe use of stem cell products and therapies. And the, the reality is, you know, these days, these, these things are starting to become more of a reality. Um, but for you, what would you say, you know, during your tenure as an advocate, as you've alluded to, as an advocate for regenerative medicine, what would you say your greatest victory has been, something that you want to be remembered by? Well, uh, there have been a number of things that I've considered sort of greatest hits, right, uh, along the way. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey. I think that the, uh, the work, early work that I did in the United Nations and my organization did was highly significant. To take the Wayback Machine to 2002, three, and four, uh, in the issue of human reproductive cloning. Uh, cloning, of course, was a sledgehammer word. And uh, at the time, 
the issue of cloning had, and the, the issue of therapeutic cloning of stem cells had sort of been hijacked, hadn't sort of, it had been hijacked into the abortion debate of Roe v. Wade in the United States. And because of that, this became one of the wedge issues of American politics. And back in those days under uh, uh, George W. Bush, there was an initiative to actually uh, create a world treaty to ban human reproductive cloning. But it wasn't cast as just human reproductive cloning, it was human cloning. And human cloning, of course, by broad definition that was being used included scientific cloning of stem cells. And that uh, was viewed as a affront to freedom for scientific research, as well as um, uh, an attempt to sort of sidestep and morally condemn an, an emerging area at the time. So uh, I was drawn into, interestingly, that debate. I was a newly minted full-time stem cell advocate. And I got a tip from uh, a Reuters uh, reporter that covered the United Nations about this effort. And I did a quick study of it. And I read an article in a law review uh, by Janet Dolgen at Hofstra that was framing out, framed out the issue. And there were protesters in front of the United Nations holding up fetus, pictures of fetuses. And uh, David Prentice of the Family Research Council, Focus on the Family, a scientist that was con condemning embryonic stem cell research, had actually given a presentation to the United Nations and was appointed as a, a delegate from Costa Rica to do this. So I, that was the first major advocacy effort. And at the time, uh, there was a advocacy uh, grassroots organization that I was involved with called the Stem Cell Action Coalition. It was a bunch of stem cell advocates, ordinary people. And we chose to make that the number one issue. And uh, uh, what we did is organized a mass fax letter campaign to the United Nations. I created a conference for the United Nations on these issues and brought in the most prominent stem cell scientists to teach the UN the difference between unethical reproductive cloning and cloning of stem cells. Well, we were able to save the research in the legal committee, it was called the Sixth Committee of the UN by a single vote, derail the whole process. And at the end, the treaty uh, gambit uh, failed mm -hmm. and arguably therapeutic cloning could go on. And this was happening at the same time of Prop 71 and the stem cell advocacy world, interestingly enough, uh, the grassroots world, uh, were a bunch of people that would call up each other on conference calls. I was going over, meeting people, going to different parts of the country, sleeping on a sofas of other advocates, uh, uh, and then trying to influence what was going on with Washington and the more professional advocacy organization, the Coalition for Advancement of Medical Research. Bygone era, you asked me, I thought that was the be all end all, that I did a conference in the United Nations when 18 months before I had been just 
suing people for a living, you know. Uh, I thought I had achieved the greatest goal in my life, but that was only the beginning of a uh, of the career that I created for myself and many, many other milestones. Uh, most recently, uh, my work in Prop 14. Hmm. Yes, I mean, I don't think, maybe our listeners don't realize what a big deal it was that specific event that that UN conference and uh, just the the time that that was taking place in with the restrictions and, and it was pre IPS global effort scientific effort in the stem cell field was directed towards finding creating a genetically matched pluripotent stem cells that was priority number one for stem cell biology um, and uh, you know, they were about to outlaw the, the effort. It, this wasn't about like, you know, revoking funding, which they had already done. They were going to say, you cannot legally do this. So this was a very, very important time and a, and a watershed moment. And I mean, I will say though, it seems like ancient history to the young, young trainees like Arun and his ilk, but um, it wasn't that long ago. And I mean, one of the reasons why I think that it doesn't get that much attention is because it was wrapped up in this whole Raelian led clonade effort where they claimed to have cloned the first human cloning. Um, and part of your, your work there, in addition to the much more, I think, tangible and long-term watershed contribution of, you know, lifting the potential ban or, or, or uh, staving it off, was also just debunking this whole cloning claim. Um, and, you know, the, the whole cult and alien association made it kind of like a, a punchline on the nightly talk shows, but the scientific reality that was pretty scary. And now t about 20 years later, almost nobody, I don't see anybody laughing when John K. Hay announced that he, he created the first two CRISPR babies, you know? Um, in more well, you hit the nail on you hit the nail on the head, right? I'm listening to that story about Lulu. What's the, what are the baby's names again? Lulu. I've got the other one. Right. But anyway, these two little CRISPR babies, right? All right. Well, what did that remind me of? Was the alleged cloned baby Eve when I filed a lawsuit back in the day to test the truth of the claim, uh, and the legal principles were. Uh, guardianship, creating a guardianship for the alleged cloned child because the child could be exploited or not get the right medical treatment, brought it to the court's attention in the jurisdiction where the announcement was made. So I was thinking about the uh, CRISPR babies. If this had happened in the United States, the same principles that were applied to the, the what is now I call the cloning case uh, would apply today. And the idea that any uh, scientist or rogue scientist that would create a child uh, outside the boundaries of uh, uh, ethical uh, behavior uh, could face consequences. And the, and the state, the government has a right, if not, and a duty to protect the vulnerable child. So that can serve as a deterrent to some of the, the, the crazy speculation of what might happen uh, in the future. But of course, you know, science, the convergence of science and technology today makes uh, uh, anything possible, mm. so it seems.
so it seems. And I guess moving from the past to the, the current moment in time, it seems like we're in an amazing moment if you, I guess, look past what happened last year in 2020. But when it comes to regenerative medicine and the current time period we're in, it's it's incredible because we're talking about almost every episode about these amazing new technologies that are intersecting with the regenerative medicine field to enable more precise interrogation of stem cell function, making stem cells safer, perhaps more accessible for maybe universal therapies. I mean, some of the technologies we've already talked about, like CRISPR, but there's also, of course, induced pluripotent stem cells, single cell sequencing, organoids, and so on, and even machine learning that we've talked about recently. Is there a particular technology that do you find exceptionally exciting because of its ability to make stem cell research and stem cell therapy uh, more accessible? You know, uh, some of this is uh, too lofty for me to give a scientific uh, analysis, but uh, the convergence of technologies is astonishing, right? Uh, all of this stuff is moving at a lot, it's seemingly at light speed. How about quantum speed, all right? And uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, I think if we had to put our finger on one thing that could accelerate the field rapidly, it's the advances uh, of machine learning. Uh, but also uh, just, I think uh, gene editing is an incredible breakthrough. And, uh, and the application of gene editing uh, to uh, medicine is going to be fascinating. The question is, is how quickly any of this is going to uh, come about. And uh, I think that there's a, a lack of understanding the geopolitical and global uh, applications uh, and competition as it relates to all of this. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Arum, you were, you're an expert on uh, microgravity and, and sending up stem cells into low earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a space race going on now. Yep. There are applications of these technologies to uh, health of, uh, of humans on earth, right? Uh, dealing with radiation or any kind of other types of apoc apocalyptic type circumstances, but how are we going to send uh, uh, humans into the void and have them survive? And uh, it's, it's tremendous because it's an industrial issue. It's a military issue. There are all these elements, geopolitical elements, and uh, with different uh, societies using, uh, using these technologies, perhaps weaponizing them, that isn't just out of some science fiction movie, or, uh, but uh, it's real and it's happening now. And, um, you know, it's future shock. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the geopolitical ramifications, right? I mean, you've long talked about, you've been an advocate for, for promoting the treatment of patients, of course, that's a no brainer, but you've also thought and spoken about the societal implications of not just uh, stem cell-based therapies there, as you alluded to in terms of geopolitical, economics and, and competition, et cetera, 
but also just baseline, like what does it mean and what's it gonna mean, the increase in longevity that goes with it. And presumably there's a lot of hope there, a lot of positive potential, but of course also a lot of risk in terms of like just general unknown unknowns in terms of the allocation of the therapy and potential side effects, but also just unequal distribution, et cetera. And having some people in our society that are, have increased longevity and some oftentimes it'll be just linked to their means. Um, what are some of the best case, worst case scenarios that you've considered and like, how do we navigate this future shock with mitigating the potential downstream negative sequelae? It's a loaded question. You know, one of the, <laughs> figure it out, Bernie. <laughs> one, of, one of the things we want to, we want to normalize this as best we can. Right. So the way I framed have framed it, uh, I call the stem cell uh, uh, revolution as a consumer movement. Okay, a consumer movement. What does that mean? Well, if the ordinary person, the man or woman in the street, I'll include myself. You know, uh, twenty years ago, we don't know what stem cells are. Stem cell research. It's just. It's not a public health issue. It's a personal health issue. It's something that's going to help cure myself, my, my children, my grandchildren, grandma, you know, my best friend. Uh, it's, it's a personal health issue. That's something that the general population will support. Look at Prop 14. I was, I was honored to be on the, uh, the uh, board of directors of the campaign. It was a very small board of directors. Uh, Californians for Stem Cell Research, Treatments and Cures. Uh, and uh, how is that going to pass? Well, it did pass, right? Okay, it's, it normalizes this future medicine in a way that people can understand it. Of course, there's always the difference between hype and hope, right? We understand, understand that. And you come up to the hard reality, like I said, of trying to get something so futuristic uh, and move to the uh, move to the front of the line, so it can actually uh, help people. So at this point, I forgot your question, but even even so, even so, you did hit upon distributive justice, mm -hmm. and uh, when we see the enthusiasm for the field of longevity now, uh, you know, one of my tales from the crypt is when I spoke at Aubrey de Grey's uh, conference at the University of Cambridge on uh, societal implications of strategies of, of uh, negligible senescence. Uh, you know, my IQ raised five points just that I could say it. So, you know, strategies of engineered negligible senescence. I'm getting older, I missed the word. But the point being that uh, there are aficionados of that that are pouring resources into the field, millions, maybe billions of dollars Think of them as the Silicon Valley billionaires, right? If you have all the money in the world, of course you want to live forever because you don't think you're going to run out of money. But how does that apply to a farmer in Malawi? That's another question altogether. And that's the dilemma of this field in future medicine because uh, someone might be able to afford an autologous treatment 
in an exotic destination and get back on the golf course, maybe. Uh, but how does that help humanity? Are we going to be able to put a, a cell formula in a doctor's black bag in a third world or economically challenged situation? That's the promise of this. And it, it ain't going to be easy, but that's the goal. Absolutely. And I wanted to circle back to something that you just said in your answer here. You talked about hype versus hope. And while the stem cell field has had a number of clinical trials and other products, other therapies that are scientifically backed and founded on scientific evidence, there are unfortunately a lot of bad actors in this particular field associated with stem cell biology who are peddling, you know, unproven products to treat an unbelievable range of ailments. And I don't, I don't want to say snake oil, but a lot of times that's what it is, right? It's, it's ineffective at best and extremely dangerous at worst, right? Unfortunately, there's been an increase in these bad actors over the years. And I'm wondering, what is your foundation doing to play a role in um, alleviating the, the influence of these bad actors? And what can we do as a field and as a community to kind of spread the, you know, to combat the spread of these malicious clinics and these, uh, these, these bad actors? And, and more importantly, to really ensure the integrity of this field. This is a very, very challenging uh, issue uh, that uh, emerged over the years because the consumer movement that I was explaining create in effect the restrictions at the time on embryonic stem cell research had a, a countervailing that had a response. When you're trying to take away something that people feel is almost a salvation technology, it created in part the consumer demand for this, these mm -hmm. technologies, the consumer demand for this. And unfortunately, that was seized upon and the public perception that stem cells are, are, are curative and, a sal and well, the salvation that uh, some, of, some in the medical community seized upon this stem cells as a brand. And the brand of stem cells means cures. And you could say apple stem cells that you'll apply to your sore elbow, you know, there's a product out there. Anything with stem cells works. So this phenomenon first caught the attention of folks, mainly because it was overseas. People were going to China, to different clinics. And it was, of course, the seminal paper by Lee Turner and Paul Knopfler that really brought this, I whether it's 2016, 18, I don't remember at this point, brought it to the forefront of everyone's attention, much to their credit. Um, so what do we find in the real world? Well, uh, you know, if you live in my neighborhood in South Florida, we get flyers to invite us to for a free lunch at a restaurant across the street. And a chiropractor is presenting a a, a seminar to a senior citizen community saying, well, you know, we offer stem cell treatments and we take the umbilical cord cells and put it in there and you won't have this knee replacement. Everyone's eating their baked salmon and saying, boy, this sounds like a really great idea. 
Well, it's not a great idea. That's a terrible idea. And, uh, and if it, these uh, uh, technologies are branded and used as a money-making scheme by practitioners who have no business doing it, and first of all, it's not approved by any authority, they're just making it up or branding things that are legal, rich plasma, or if they're branding it as stem cells, that's a giant problem. Uh, and it's right here and now in River City in the United States. So what are we gonna do about it? Well, this is this in the most egregious situations, let's take the US stem cell case that was based right here in South Florida. And I knew, I knew the plaintiff's attorneys uh, very well from my, just my past career. That was a, such an, a terrible case of medical malpractice, okay? It, it was astonishing. And uh, this has wound its way through the court system. But the real problem aren't cases like that that are really few and far between, right? It's the fact that the brand of stem cells has been hijacked. And, uh, and it, because it's outside of the medical reimbursement system, there, it's like a cash business, essentially. And it's being misrepresenting the field. Does it have an effect? Who knows? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't in some cases. Maybe it's a placebo. But um, it hasn't really been a debacle of human health sometimes as it's represented. Where am I coming from when I say that? I'm looking at the lack of litigation that has happened as a result of these, this widespread misuse of stem cell technologies or branding. It's a consumer issue. It's a financial issue. It has to do with consumers being ripped off. But is it really a, a, a condition that has seen a lot of consumer uh, litigation from the standpoint of medical malpractice? It's interesting that it has not, I would submit, although this isn't a, any kind of legal study. This is intuitive of following how the law has uh, approached this. There are tremendous bad actors that must be shut down, and there's some that should be shut down for just misbranding, ripping off people, uh, of, of course. So there's a lot more to be considered in the survey of all of this than just simply um, uh, medical malpractice and egregious misbranding. Yeah, I've often thought that in in the United States, for better or worse, oftentimes the, the regulations follow the litigation, right? You got to get a lot of people suing or a lot of people have to be hurt or killed before we'll change the laws. But in this case, it's difficult to identify the, the, the negative consequences, right? Because it's just it's nothing, you know, oftentimes. And in the worst case, yes, there can be clearly identifiable negative side effects and those are tragic and terrible and, and egregious but oftentimes it's just eh, it didn't do anything um which is an issue in itself and i think the bigger problem there is that we're waiting for the litigation when really we need to just consider this as a whole new thing we need to be preemptive i think as a the the whoever the regulatory actors are who you've had a, a strong role in influencing we need to figure this out de novo this is a unique uh, it's a unique therapeutic and it presents a lot of unique problems and we need to stop the, the mark, the marketing of a cellular product with 
claims with little to no evidence. It's it's really crazy, but um, you know, I, I think ultimately it's a the the brighter days are ahead, and like anything new, there's some growing pains and, and stumbling blocks along the way. But it's been really uh, fun to get a little bit of insight into the history and 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 looking at what you've done early days and where we are now. You really, um, I think, at least myself, I'm really optimistic about the regulatory uh apparatus and the reality of therapeutics from stem cells before we let you go that we have a couple questions that are a little peref- peripheral to uh in your case the law and the the history of stem cell regulation what's the best piece of advice professional or not that you've ever been given i can't just give one i'm going to give i'm going to give two so uh when i was first becoming a stem cell advocate in a big way. Uh, I attended all of the early International Society for Stem Cell Research meetings. And I fraternized a lot with the original board of directors of the ISSCR. And one of them was Dr. Ron Mackay. And Ron Mackay was you know, a giant in neural stem cells. And he had a way of speaking in this conspiratorial way of kind of a whisper. And I was uh, sitting in the lobby, I think there was a meeting in Boston, I'm sitting in the lobby of the hotel. And Dr. Mackay comes up, Bernie, yes, Bernie, what you're doing is okay. I want you to know it's okay. But if you move out of the legal realm and the law, they will destroy you. I was was in awe. Who was going to destroy me? I was, you know, I changed careers. I'm the stem cell advocate. So I got, I guess it was good advice. Whenever I stray too far into science, uh, you know, uh, I have to catch myself because I don't want anyone to destroy me. But uh, I find the safety refuge, of course, in law. So that was uh, the stem cell advice. But the other advice that I got was from a uh, Judge Weatherington, who was teaching a course in trial practice in law school. And it was basically all of us new lawyers to be. It was our, in our last semester, and we're all kind of nervous. We have to pass the bar. We can have our first case in court. And his basic message was show up. What? Show up. He says, when you're, when you're starting off, no one is going to think you're going to be worthwhile. No one is going to want to think that they're, they're going to have to listen to you. But the key is you have to show up. That alone is going to surprise people and they're going to have to take you seriously. So if you expand that as a young scientist, you, you got to show up. You got to network. You got to go meeting, go to meetings. You got to interact with your uh, with your uh, the leading scientists in the field rub shoulders, have coffee, just don't sit in front of your uh, the bench and look at the cells. Look at the wider world is how I interpret that. Show up, guys. Just show up. I mean, that is the first step. You lose all the battles, you don't fight. And in science, I mean, I guess we get demoralized, but you just got to keep showing up. Bernie, thank you so much for showing up for this interview. You've done a lot, and uh, you know your most recent accomplishment is influencing the next generation and current generation of stem cell scientists and beyond. So thanks a million for that, and uh, we'll catch you in your next big uh, court case, hopefully. Thanks. I enjoyed it.
All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. This was a fun episode with someone who's a little bit peripheral to science, but instrumental to moving the effort forward. Thank you, Bernie Siegel. I'm going to call you doctor for now. Honorary Dr. Siegel. Thank you for joining us. Now get back in the courtroom and get these therapies in the people, partner. 